Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello. My name is Spencer. And in my podcast called The Dictionary, I literally read from the dictionary, but add in my personal comments and stupid jokes to make it more interesting. Episodes are family friendly, short, and air every single day on basically every podcast platform. Come join me on this journey filled with edutainment. Hello and welcome to How Did This Not Get Made? This is the podcast all about the movies you never saw, the scripts that were never filmed, and the ideas that never even made it to the page. My name is David Spencer. My name is Daniel Kaka. I realized we don't have a guest. Yeah. So I forgot the and in there. <laughs> this has been unusual for us to have a guestless episode. Shout out to Dan for booking all these guests all the time because it's not easy to do that with podcasting. Work around everybody's schedules, find people who are good for the episodes. So uh, Yeah, like I really don't know how Tony Goldmark does it having oh, yeah. Yeah, different guests. Although there is two or three regulars that he has on the show, but still that's pretty hard to schedule. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dan, what are we talking about today? This was a subject that was suggested to us. It is a subject that we have kind of been hinting at, especially in our Star Wars episodes. And this is a personal favorite of mine. We are going to be talking about the Samurai Jack movie. Mm -hmm. Now, before we head into Samurai Jack, David, I just want to know, what is your history with Samurai Jack? So I have never actually seen Samurai Jack. It's a cartoon that has a lot of love. I have seen a lot of stuff from Kenny Tartakovsky. I was a voracious watcher of his animated Clone Wars show. I don't know if you've ever seen that, Dan. I've watched it once through, Mm -hmm. once it was on Disney+, Plus, but that is definitely a blind spot of mine. Yeah, that's a really bizarre piece of Star Wars media because it's very unlike anything that Lucasfilm would make in the Star Wars universe for a lot of reasons. But also, I've been a fan of his other stuff. I saw Dexter's Laboratory. I really enjoyed Powerpuff Girls. For whatever reason, Samurai Jack was just never something that I really got into. I think it's that show was out kind of around the same time as Avatar The Last Airbender, right? Maybe a little bit before that. It was like just before. They had like a small... Oh, no, they didn't. 
It was definitely before Avatar The Last Airbender. I feel like those two shows were similar areas of animated action shows designed for older kids than a lot of the other shows on Cartoon Network or Nickelodeon. And I think I just missed the boat on Samurai Jack. Like, I feel like I was probably just like a little too young for it when it was first airing. And then Avatar The Last Airbender is what hit me at just the right time. I do need to go back and watch Samurai Jack because I know it has a lot of love. It does. It's definitely up there as one of my all-time favorite animated TV shows of all time. Yeah. And it wasn't even the nostalgia reasons. Like, I really enjoyed this TV show when I was a kid. And I remember my brother and I, we would constantly watch the show and we would be excited to actually watch when they premiered. So we were watching it as it was happening. Mm. I have much love for the show, a lot of nostalgia for the show. I think it was just because it was on Cartoon Network. I didn't even connect that Gendy was the one who created Dexter's Lab, that he was a part of Powerpuff Girls, and then made Samurai Jack. I didn't connect those either. And I remember when the Clone Wars series came out, I was like, oh, that's the guy who did Samurai Jack. And it didn't even connect with me until years later. It's like, oh, wait, he also did all of these other great things. (laughs) Yeah, he was definitely in the early era, and we'll discuss more upon this later, but he was like in the early era of Cartoon Network, Mm -hmm. where Cartoon Network was just simply doing Hanna-Barbera reruns, which we discussed in our Scooby-Doo episode. But this is around the time that Cartoon Network was also trying to create their own media, and Yendi was just one of the many animators who were on the roster of those who are creating TV shows simply for this network alone. So I think that's why it hit so well is that, I mean, Cartoon Network was just a network that I regularly watched. Samurai Jack just like hit differently. I think part of it had to do with that. There was Asian representation Mm -hmm. on television. I think that's what hit me so hard because Mm. you grow up with mostly white characters on TV. And then all of a sudden you see an Asian character who is just dominating in this cartoon and (laughs) is the main character. I think that's why I had gravitated and loved this show so much. Yeah. And of course, I know the villain is played by Mako, who is Mm -hmm. legendary, legendary voice actor, who, of course, was also Uncle Iroh in Avatar The Last Airbender. And that was another thing that was always in the back of my mind of like, "Ah, I really need to go watch that show. (laughs) Definitely. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. But let's get into this. We're going to first start off with kind of who Gendy Tartakovsky is mm-hmm. and where he came from. So he was born on January 17th, 1970 in Moscow. So his mother was an assistant principal and his father was a dentist for government officials and the Soviet Union hockey team. <laughs> At a young age, he and his family actually moved to Italy due to concerns of anti-Semitism that was spreading throughout Russia, mm. seeing that the Tartakovskys were Jewish. Hmm. There in Italy, Gendi actually first learned how to draw and create art from the neighbor's daughter, whose name was Malvina, whose family was also from Russia. They had fled from Russia as well. Mm-hmm. Gendi was seven when the family then moved again to Columbus, Ohio, and then finally settled in Chicago. It was after purchasing his first issue of Super Friends that he became interested in comics and would often wake up early to watch cartoons before going to school. Hmm. Jendi enrolled in Columbia College in Chicago, where he would study advertising. This is much like Jim Davis. If you don't really see the major that you're gunning for, which is like art, he figured like, well, advertising is like art adjacent. You have to make (laughs) art for advertising. So I figure like that's the way he should go for like a proper career. Yeah. But unlike Jim Davis, he actually signed up way too late and didn't end up making it into that class and then ended up signing up for the animation classes instead, which I don't believe that this was a mistake. I think he was just like, "Eh, I could just push this off (laughs) and like then get into the class that he wants to and just kind of tell his family like, I didn't mess up here. Yeah. Gendy, he actually rose to the top of his class. I rose to the top of the program just because, not from talent. I don't think it had to do anything to do with talent. I think it just had to do with, I just worked six times more than anybody else on it because I was so passionate about it. When enrolled, his teacher, Stan Hughes, gave Gendy access to his own collection of 16 millimeter prints of cartoons. He would use the school's editing machine to pause the film frame by frame to study the character movements. From what he learned, he managed to make a three-minute animated short called Columbia College Student. It is about a kid who is getting in trouble in school. He goes to his locker, he gets changed, and then for the rest of the film, he gets chased by these little woolly creatures. Hmm. Gendy's older brother was actually living in Los Angeles to go to college, and his roommate is someone that had a familiar interest with Gendy. His name was Rob Renzetti. Oh, what? (laughs) Yeah. What? (laughs) Gendy, he actually went out to visit his brother, and that's where he met Rob for the first time. And actually, soon after, Rob then moved to Chicago, and they both attended Columbia College. And that's where the two became really good friends with each other. Wow. (laughs) Now, for those who don't know and are not sure why I'm reacting this way, Rob Renzetti is another big-time animator, has worked on a ton of shows, including was a creator of My Life as a Teenage Robot. But he also was a big part of Gravity Falls and has been a frequent guest of Mystery Shack Look Back, which is also on PipeDreamPodcast.com. So that's kind of wild. Wow, I did not know that connection. That's great. Right? 
I was shocked to find this out. And I was like, there's no way it's like that Rob Renzetti. Yeah. I'm sure it's just like some other person. But no, it is the Rob Renzetti that you had mentioned. And they were roommates. And they were roommates. <laughs> yeah. Renzetti, he actually convinced Gendi to enroll in the California Institute of the Arts after Renzetti had actually gotten rejected by them. Gendi was accepted after sending them a shoebox full of flipbooks displaying his animation talent. He then moved to Los Angeles, and he studied there for two years from 1993 to 94. The most important thing that Tartakovsky learned from studying at CalArts is that everything is a simple shape. A character can be broken down into multiple simple shapes. Mm -hmm. The first student animated short Gendy made was a Tex Avery style four and a half minute long short called Muffy Meets the Mafia. Hmm. It's about a cat who saves a dog and now that dog won't leave that cat alone. <laughs> In his second year at CalArts, Gendy worked on another short called Changes. He drew inspiration from Calvin and Hobbes and he liked the contrasting look between the two characters and he thought he could develop something from that. So he came up with a tall, skinny ballerina girl who was interested in art, but she needed to interact with someone, a complete opposite of her, possibly like a little, small, square kid who was interested in science <laughs> and he had his own laboratory in his room. It's funny that Dee Dee was the first character that was created for that. That's so weird. Yeah. I didn't think that she was the first one yeah. because like, I mean, Dexter's in the title. So you're yeah. just like, oh, that's the main character. But no, yeah, Dee Dee was the first one to be created. Huh. She would then go into his lab and mess around with his inventions and experiments. This was the first iteration of Dexter's Laboratory. Gendy then used his roommate, Rob Renzetti, to voice Dexter using a comical French accent. Let me go! Also around this time at CalArts, Craig McCracken developed a short called Whoop-Ass Stew, a short about three girls made in a lab, and with an accidental ingredient of a can of whoop-ass, he creates the Whoop-Ass Girls, which would later inspire the Powerpuff Girls. Amazing. Also around this time, we had Van Partible, who made Mess O' Blues, which was a short about a Elvis impersonator who would later on become Johnny Bravo. Gendy's first job out of CalArts was at Lepez Azul Productions in Spain, where he worked for Batman the Animated Series. There he learned the intensity of what it takes to crank out an animated TV show. For former classmate Craig McCracken, he was working over at Hanna-Barbera on Two Stupid Dogs when he was asked if he knew any other guys that could be art directors, and McCracken suggested Gendy and Renzetti to join their team. It was around the time that Turner Entertainment, who was the parent company of Hanna-Barbera, they were in the process of launching their new network, Cartoon Network, and they were looking for shorts from their animators so that they could potentially turn into television shows. Producer Larry Hunter had seen the short changes and convinced Gendy to pitch the idea. Gendy, Craig McCracken, and Paul Rudish got together and animated a polished short called Dexter's Laboratory. Cartoon Network was hesitant on the short at first because the pitch didn't sound interesting, but after watching the completed animated short, they realized how Gendy was great at executing visual jokes. Ooh, what does this button do? Please, please, do not push the button. You have no idea what it does. 
The short had received an Emmy for Best Animated Short and was signed on to be a series. Oh, wow. Dexter's Laboratory's initial two seasons aired from April 28th, 1996 to June 15th, 1998, leading up to the made-for-TV movie Dexter's Laboratory Ego Trip, with the intention that this would be the series finale. Well, then, we should be getting back to our own times. Goodbye, Dexter. 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 Goodbye, Billy. After which, Gendy would have the opportunity to start a new show. When Dexter's Lab was renewed in 2001, that show was run by Chris Savino, who was the storyboard artist for the first initial seasons. For Gendy, while he worked on Dexter's Lab, he also worked as a supervising producer, writer, recording director, storyboard artist, and director for the Powerpuff Girls. Sugar, spice, and everything nice. These were the ingredients chosen to create the perfect little girl. But Professor Utonium accidentally added an extra ingredient to the concoction, Chemical X. Thus, the Powerpuff Girls were born! Using their ultra superpowers, Blossom, Bubbles, and Buttercup have dedicated their lives to fighting crime and the forces of evil! In doing the research, this was something that was clarified to me. Mm -hmm. Again, just because I just didn't look too much into it. I was under the belief that Gindy Tartakovsky had created Dexter's Laboratory, which I was right, mm -hmm. and he had created the Powerpuff Girls, which I was wrong. Mm. But he was very heavily involved yeah. in that. And looking at the animation styles, they're very similar to each other. Oh, yeah. And even the action. Like, you don't really think about Dexter's Lab as being like an action-filled television show until you think back at it, and you're just like, Dee Dee caused a lot of explosions. <laughs> Like, there are so many gadgets and gizmos, like, in there. And then there's the shorts that come with it. So there's Dial M for Monkey, and then there was the Justice Friends. Mm. It's very much action-filled. It makes sense that later down the road, why he would go on to make Samurai Jack and why that worked out so well. Yeah, absolutely. During a dinner Jendi had with Cartoon Network executive Mark Lazo, Tartakovsky recalled their interaction with Lazo saying, quote, Hey, remember David Carradine in Kung Fu? Wasn't that cool? And Gendy responded with, yeah, that was really cool. And that was literally the pitch. <laughs> <laughs> it was at this point in Gendy's career that he was leaning more towards action-filled animation. Like we mentioned before, the amount of action that was in Dexter's Laboratory and Powerpuff Girls, this seemed to work out pretty well. Now, Gendy loosely clarified what he wanted to do next. He wanted to, quote, do a really highly stylized action show with simple stories with about 15 minutes of fighting. And they just let him do it because, I mean, he's been successful thus far, so why not? I mean, is that how Samurai Jack is? It's just like 15-minute-long fight scenes every episode? Yeah. <laughs> There's a behind-the-scenes featurette with Phil Lamar, who voices Samurai Jack, and they ask him about his role, and he's like, this is the best job that I've ever had. I mean, he really loves the show in the first place, but the other part of it is like, I come in here and I only have to say like four lines for an episode. And a bunch of grunts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some bunch of grunts or just like a small interactions with the characters that he's with. Because so much of the show 
relies on the visuals. That's what the whole thing with Clone Wars was as well, where those were five-minute episodes, and most of them are just an extended fight scene. Yes, it is. As a kid, Tartakovsky was fascinated with samurai culture and the Bushido Code. In a Yahoo interview, he explains the premise came from a reoccurring dream, quote, I've been having the same dream since I was 10. The earth is destroyed. Mutants come alive. I've got a samurai sword. I go next door to the girl I have a crush on. I grab her. She survived, of course. And we travel the world fighting mutants. The show draws a lot of cinematic inspiration from Ben-Hur, Lawrence of Arabia, and Spartacus. The show draws even more inspiration from Frank Miller's Ronin, in which a samurai is reincarnated and finds himself in a dystopic near-future New York and has to fight shape-shifting demons. There's even an episode that pays homage to Frank Miller's 300, the episode Jack and the Spartans, which premiered on October 4th, 2002, years before the movie 300 came out, which came out in 2006, Hmm. so about four years later. Other inspirations were the manga Lone Wolf and Cub and many of Kurosawa films. Gendy has before said that there's really no scripts that are written for Samurai Jack. Obviously, they have to write something down when the actors come in to voice the characters, but Mm -hmm. they don't ever start off with a script. The way that they start and create each episode is through storyboards. Hmm. So you'll see whenever anyone's credited as the writer of the show, it's not just written by, it's always storyboarded and written by, and especially in the fifth season, it says, and they emphasize, storyboard and written by Gindy Tartakovsky. Hmm. It's definitely about the action first. It's about the visuals first, which is... The actions, the visuals, it is one of the most gorgeous shows that's out there. And that's such a cool thing to do with animation, particularly as well. With film being a visual medium, you know, it's really cool that it has that much focus and you can really tell. I think Gendy Tartakovsky is probably one of the few animator names that I knew, you know, that was making shows at the time. And I think that's because, you know, his stuff was just so unique. Yeah, he's definitely one of those animators that changed the trajectory of animation and change what this industry is like. Yeah, absolutely. When developing the premise, Cartoon Network had a code that didn't allow their programs to show explicit killing, especially a sword slicing through multiple people. So the way that they got around this was to have Jack fight a bunch of robots and placing him in a future dystopia where robots were plentiful. When it came to the style and how the show was illustrated, they eliminated the black outline. This is something that I didn't really notice. I couldn't pinpoint why Powerpuff Girls and Dexter's Lab had a visual difference until that was pointed out. And I was like, oh, that's the reason why, because there's like a seamless line between Jack and his background that feels more natural. Mm. Now to voice the characters, they got Phil Lamar to play Jack. What the heck is going on? You have lost. The battle is over. What? You are my inner demon. You have been born from the hatred within me. But now that hatred is no more. Thus, you do not exist. I know him most as a cast member of Mad TV. He also plays Hermes in Futurama. He was also in Pulp Fiction, which (laughs) I completely forgot about. It's like the first job that Samuel Jackson and John Travolta go to. 
He's like the guy at the door. Oh, yeah, and he takes yeah. his drink or his milkshake or something like that. That's Phil Lamar. He's been a voice in so many things. He was somebody in Star Wars. He was Green Lantern. Yeah, he was Green Lantern for, was it, Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. Mm. He was also Static Shock, mm. which is nuts, yeah. And then, as we mentioned before, for Aku, they cast Maku Awamatsu. Nothing of this world can harm me, for I am Aku, the Shogun of Sorrow, the Deliverer of Darkness, your new master, and you will bow to me. He was Akiro, the wizard, in Conan, the barbarian. And then for the Avatar, the last Airbender fans, he was Uncle Iroh. Yes. What a legend. The show premiered on Cartoon Network on August 10th, 2001 as a three-part episode. Long ago in a distant land, I, Aku, the shape-shifting master of darkness, unleashed an unspeakable evil. But a foolish samurai warrior wielding a magic sword stepped forth to oppose me. Before the final blow was struck, I tore open a portal in time and flung him into the future, where my evil is law. Now the fool seeks to return to the past and undo the future that is Aku. It was the beginning, the samurai called Jack, and the first fight. And it was a critical success. The premiere was so popular that it sold as a standalone VHS and DVD known as Samurai Jack, the premiere movie. The show's initial run ran from 2001 to 2003 for four seasons with a total of 52 episodes. Unfortunately, the story did not end when the fourth season ended. According to Tarchovsky, quote, coming close to the end of the fourth season, we're like, are we going to finish it? And I didn't know. The network didn't know. We were going through a lot of transition also. So I decided, you know, I don't want to rush and finish the whole story. And so we just left it like there was no conclusion. And then the final episode is just another episode. I had initially watched Samurai Jack when it first came out, and I was not really aware of this. And I had rewatched it in college from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. It threw me off to find out that after the last season, because I was expecting to see the end of Aku and finally how that was going to happen, because like I thought that maybe because I was so young, I just didn't remember it. Yeah. And then the last episode happened and Jack just walks off into the woods. And like Jendi had said, it was just another episode. And I was like, it just stopped. The show just stopped happening. Mm -hmm. And I had to look through a bunch of special features and interviews with Gendy to find out that he had left to do Clone Wars. Mm. It was like Woody's finest hour. Where's the next episode? It never happened. <laughs> the, the astronauts went up and Gendy just wanted to play with space toys. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or really, when Star Wars comes knocking, you never say no to Star Wars. You never say no. And from art director Scott Willis, we didn't think we had the time to think about it because we went right to Clone Wars and they even overlapped, I think. There was no time to even think about it. Mm -hmm. In November 2001... Animation World Network, AWN, announced that New Line Cinema, 
purchased the rights to Samurai Jack and had plans to make it into a live action feature with Brett Radner as the director. Brett Radner, he directed the Rush Hour series. Mm-hmm. Jendi stated in an interview in 2006 that he was glad that New Line didn't make a live action version of Jack, stating, quote, We will finish the story and there will be an animated film. Well, I guess you can kind of tell from watching Clone Wars is that there is a certain style to Jindy Tartakovsky. He likes to play with frames. There's a certain anime style that he puts into Western animation. It's hard to translate that into a live action movie. Oh, yeah. I get the appeal of doing so, but like, I just don't think it'll translate over. It's kind of like my opinions or how I feel about The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is that that story is so unique and special because of how Douglas Adam writes it. And the best way to experience that is by reading that book. Or listening to the radio show. Or listening to the radio show because you have the narrator there as well. Mm -hmm. But listening to Douglas Adams' humor and his words is really the best medium to experience that story. Yeah, it's not written to be visual. It is not. The throw yourself at the ground and miss, (laughs) if you were to try to show that visually, it would break the joke. Yes, it would. So that's how I feel about Samurai Jack moving outside of animation, because it being an animated show and the way that they animate it is part of what makes the show incredibly unique. And by taking that away, you're simply left with Jack, well, in a coup, and I guess he's just fighting off a bunch of people. And it just kind of turns into another action movie. And it just doesn't have that style anymore. And maybe we should also, I don't know if you have plans to talk more about Brett Ratner here. He's not exactly the greatest filmmaker. I can't hear the name Brett Ratner without thinking about that bit in Community where there's like a line where Shirley says, oh, I saw Tower Heist. Brett Ratner, he's the next Steven Spielberg. (laughs) He's just a master at making movies in general. You know what I'm going to say? He's the new Spielberg. I have to go. You're a bad person. You're a bad person. And like walks away. <laughs> I forgot he did that movie. He did Tower Heist. He did X-Men 3, The Last Stand. Oh, right. Yes. I guess they were just trying to go off of like, well, he directed Jackie Chan. So I guess he can do Asian action. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But luckily that didn't happen. Around 2002, Tartakovsky started developing a Samurai Jack movie that would conclude the series. Mm, Four seasons in a movie. Yeah. And much like what he did with Dexter and Powerpuff Girls, the film was going to be called Samurai Jack, the 3D movie. While the film was in development, the Powerpuff Girls movie was released in July 2002. Unfortunately, that film did not perform as well as Cartoon Network wanted in the box office, making over $16 million while the film cost them a 11 million dollars to make it was the film's performance financially that decided the fate of the samurai jack movie we had teased before the clone wars and i'm actually going to explain what happened there the short story that i understood is that samurai jack ended because george lucas asked jendy tartovsky to make a star wars and when george lucas asks you to make a star war you make a star war we also need to clarify that star wars 
Clone Wars is the 2D animated series, not Star Wars The Clone Wars, which is the CG animated series. That I will not get into because I don't think that's part of the story. For anybody out there who's like a continuity nerd, it's very debatable how much... Clone Wars is canon. For one, there's things are heightened to an insane degree. Like the episode with Mace Windu losing his lightsaber and single-handedly taking down an infinite amount of super battle droids with his fists. Like that's the kind of thing where it's like, is this supposed to be reality? But also there's like some things that seem to conflict with things in the movies and whatnot. Honestly, that's kind of what makes me like it even a little bit more. I mean, I've talked about how much I love Star Wars Visions on here. I like it when things are just kind of legends. I mean, that Mace Windu episode specifically ends with him seeing this little kid who was like watching the battle from afar and like getting a drink of water from him. And so a lot of people like to say that as like, oh, this series is not the 100% accurate view of how these battles went. It is the stories and legends that these random farmers who happen to be around Uh, the stories they told and their perspective on what happened, which is kind of a really cool way to think about it. These are all just like retellings of legends. Probably the biggest way that show affected Star Wars fandom and just like the perception of Star Wars in general is the introduction of General Grievous because he was introduced in the show. You are surrounded. Your army is decimated. Make peace with the Force now. This is your final hour, but know that I, General Grievous, am not completely without mercy. I will grant you a warrior's death. Prepare. And was the most badass character ever. I remember watching that episode with his introduction of him taking down like four Jedi and you being like, Hmm. holy shit, this is the (laughs) coolest thing I have ever ever seen and they don't say his name in there so like I remember me and my brother were just calling him the white robot because we were just like we had no idea what he was or who he was he was just awesome and then when he shows up in Revenge of the Sith he's a sniveling coughing coward and a lot of people were like this isn't what I was promised General Grievous you're shorter than I expected One of the early fan gripes about Revenge of the Sith was how lame General Grievous was. And I think that's specifically because he was introduced as such an epic badass. Yeah, I think part of it might have been just because they... I don't know too much about the behind the scenes of it, but it seems like George Lucas was just feeding Gendy and his team just a bunch of characters that they wanted to introduce. Oh, yeah. Obviously, you're going to have to tell them, like, what's the lore because they're working between episodes two and three. They are just basically just like giving them a character and they're like, and then we have this robot that can wield four lightsabers at one time. And they're just like, what? Excuse? Mm-hmm. I. <laughs> That sounds like the best character ever, and we're going to have a blast with that. And I'm sure George is like, yeah, just don't think about it too much, because he's not going to be that important. He's like, oh, no, we're going to run with this all the way. I think it's also probably because that show was being made while Revenge of the Sith was still in pre-production. So I think Revenge of the Sith, they didn't even entirely know what they wanted to do with him. I mean... 
General Grievous, if I'm not mistaken, was originally supposed to be voiced by, I want to say Gary Oldman. Oh. And then he stepped away at the last second and then they replaced the voice with literally one of the sound guys. (laughs) Matthew Wood, who was a sound editor, ended up voicing General Grievous and all of the battle droids. Huh. (laughs) There's a lot of cool stuff in Clone Wars. Like there's the character Saj Ventress who gets introduced in that, who has since become a big mainstay of Star Wars canon. She's kind of like the dark Ahsoka. You know, these are two characters who are kind of cast off by their light side or dark side order and do their own thing. And that was like a character that was originally created to appear in Attack of the Clones and then got scrapped, but nothing ever gets scrapped. Yeah. (laughs) I could talk forever about Clone Wars. This is not a Clone Wars podcast. No, but it kind of is. But yeah. (laughs) Around the early 2000s, Hasbro approached Lucasfilm to develop something that would keep Star Wars relevant between the prequel movies to help boost the sales of action figures and to help promote Revenge of the Sith. Mm-hmm. The suggestion to offer the job to Gendy Tartakovsky came from Cartoon Network. Now, Cartoon Network had worked with Hasbro before when they were developing their Transformer series. So this was not unusual that they would work with Hasbro again. When Lucasfilm and Tartakovsky's team first developed the series, it was going to be a series of one minute long shorts. Tartakovsky requested that it be extended to three to five minutes long instead. The shorts would depict events that happened during the Clone Wars as they would not be seen in the film. Attack of the Clones shows how the war begins, and then Revenge of the Sith depicts how the war ends. So these shorts would then fill in the gap between. For some reason, this reminds me of the Star Wars holiday special of like the thing that we want to see. They can't because they don't have the technology and they're doing a variety show because Chewie and Han are trying to escape from the Empire so that Chewie can get home. And we're like, we want to see this battle. That sounds badass. And instead, we have Wookiees waiting at home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to format each short, Gendy actually drew inspiration from Band of Brothers. Mm. And each short would be a different battle in the strategies during the Clone War. After Lucasfilm and Cartoon Network approved the pitch, Tartakovsky was given the green light to produce 23-minute long episodes. After the success of the first two 10-episode seasons, Tartakovsky was approved to make a third with five 12- to 15-minute long episodes. Cartoon Network then held a poll that would determine which Jedi would be introduced first in the new season. The choices were Ron Karab, Volvith Mon, and Foul Mandama. Volvith Mon won the vote and was introduced in Chapter 20. Do you know if these were characters that like existed before in like comics or something or in novels? I have no idea where they came from. I love that they had this fan poll of like, which character do you want to see in Clone Wars? Episode 20 was the introduction of General Grievous, where he literally murders every Jedi. So I love that they had this poll and it was like, who do you want to see? Because they're going to get killed. It's going to be great. Huh. Watch your favorite Jedi die. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, I don't know too much about, like, what happened or, like, what the behind the scenes were. It just, the only thing that was stated in the article was, like, there's three Jedi. You decide. And mm. that's all I knew. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Also accompanying the show was a Clone Wars comic, Star Wars Clone Wars Adventures, which was published by Dark Horse. The series is 10 volumes of stories that continued from the TV series using the same style as the show. 
The series last aired on March 25th, 2005, and the series was highly acclaimed, winning three Emmys, two for Outstanding Animated Program, and one for Background Key Designer Justin Thompson for Outstanding Individual in Animation. The show also won an Annie Award for Best Animated Television Production. I was just really curious on to what you were saying about the Jedi who was introduced there. Turns out the poll was just based off of which three cantina aliens do you want to see appear as Jedi? So it was like a choice between three. And the wolf man, it's like a werewolf looking guy. And he was only in the cantina because it was one of the masks that they just had on hand from some random werewolf movie. He got voted and immediately gets killed in that episode. Uh The two losers ended up also being used as well and became much bigger characters in the following season. So the popular one dies right away and the two losers became bigger characters. I had no idea. That's really funny. Amazing. Love (laughs) it. I mean, it makes sense that it was just started because Hasbro was like, we want to sell more Star Wars toys. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Oh, capitalism. Actually, yeah. Capitalism is what killed Samurai Jack. Mm -hmm. Ironically enough, when you watch the series, you'll understand. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) So in July 2006, actor Mako Awamatsu, the voice of Aku, passed away from esophageal cancer. For fans of Avatar The Last Airbender, he provided the voice of Uncle Iroh and died before he could finish the series. Iroh was taken over by Greg Baldwin, who I have actually received a cameo from. Oh, that's amazing. A friend of mine, knowing that I'm a big Avatar The Last Airbender fan, he had this kick about like giving cameos to all of his friends. And the cameo that he gave me was Greg Baldwin as Uncle Iroh wishing me a happy birthday. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I belatedly congratulate you on the anniversary of your birth. And I salute you for successfully navigating yet another trip around the sun. And just on the Avatar thing, I know he passed away when he had finished most, if not all, of season two, but passed away while season two was still airing. And there is a very famous episode where it's just of the tales of bossing say, where ends with Iroh giving a really emotional song and then has a title card that says in honor of Mako. And it makes me cry every single time. Oh, man. Yeah. If I hear just like the little bit of that tune, it's just tears, tears rolling down my face. Leaves from the vine. Falling so slow, like fragile, tiny shells, drifting in the foam. Little soldier boy, come marching home. Brave soldier boy, comes marching home. Something that I didn't realize a way that Avatar honored Mako was that they actually named a character after him Mm -hmm. in Legend of Korra. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Mako, who was created for Korra and then ended up being probably the least interesting character on that (laughs) whole show and was basically written off in the last two seasons because they didn't really have anything for him to do. (laughs) (laughs) But still, it's the thought that counts. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. In an IGN interview with Concerns About the Jack movie and Maku's Passing, Gendy recalled a conversation he had with Columbia Pictures COO Bob Osher. Quote, he's like, hey, let's talk about Jack. Let's see what we can do. 
And I go, we're going to do a 2D feature animated movie. And he's like, yeah, maybe. Let's do some research and let's see. So it's not dead for sure by any means, but it's still on the top of my list. And I'm trying as hard as I can. So in September 2006, in an interview with MTV, Gendy made the announcement that Brian Singer will possibly direct the Samurai Jack movie. Another director that I'm not so thrilled to hear connected to this. That's for less about quality of work and more about quality of character. You're a bad person. I don't know if I told you that I put Brian Singer into Slytherin. Oh, okay. So I was working at Warner Brothers. There's a... Oh, oh, I see what you're saying now. Okay, keep going. And we have the Harry Potter museum called the archives and when you go in there we have the sorting hat Mm. i was operating the sorting hat at the time i didn't know what brian singer looked like is the thing Mm -hmm. i only recognized him by name i noticed that someone had come in with two of his friends the only thing that i could tell from their interactions was that this guy works here he brought two of his friends and from the way that he was acting he was telling them what to do so when we came to the sorting hat he was like forcing his friends to be sorted by the sword and hat. And then after he forced his friends to do that, then they had him do the sword and hat afterwards. And I was like, this guy seems like a jerk. So I sorted (laughs) him into Slytherin. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And then I later heard from a friend, he had asked me, he's like, hey, did you see Brian Singer go through the archives? And I was like, that was Brian Singer? (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Love it. (laughs) Luckily, that didn't happen. So... (laughs) In 2007, Fred Siebert, the founder of Frederator Films, he announced that he was developing a Samurai Jack movie, written and directed by Gendy Tartakovsky. It was going to cost about $20 million, and they were planning on filming this in stereoscope 2D. You know those 3D glasses that have like the red and the blue? Yeah. It would basically be presented that way Hmm. for it to be a 3D movie. In 2009, it seemed like the film was still in production, and they announced that the film was being co-produced by Bad Robot Productions, with Mm. the possibility that this was going to be directed by huge Jack fan J.J. Abrams. Mm. Now, this would have been an animated movie, though. I didn't know if J.J. Abrams has any experience with animation. I don't think so, either. I imagine it was something that they signed on to produce, and then that got fan speculation that J.J. Abrams was directing. Yeah, I didn't get full confirmation on that, which is why I say, like, possibly. Mm. But I know for a fact that Bad Robot was involved in the production or the pre-production of the movie. Makes sense. In June 2012, Gendy confirmed that the script was complete, but the production was delayed when J.J. Abrams signed on to do Star Trek. Mm. That's the other part that leads me to believe that J.J. Abrams was possibly going to direct this is because if he leaves, Bad Robot can still do other things. But if he's not around, that clearly states that J.J. Abrams was going to have a higher stake in this film. For sure. On a real quick look, I'm not seeing anything that's animated. Oh, until TBA... Batman the Cape Crusader. Ah, just kidding. That was just uh, canceled by HBO Max. Oh, God. That was the uh, animated Ugh. Matt Reeves Batman project produced by Bad Robot that was just got the axe from HBO Max. Yeah. We'll talk about that later. But <laughs> HBO, you are really disappointing us yep. and giving us so much content, which we thank you for. <laughs> <laughs> At this time, Gendy was also taking a step back from the Samurai Jack production. Part of it was just how busy he was. Mm -hmm. So in February 2006, it was announced that he was going to direct Power of the Dark Crystal. 
This film was supposed to be the sequel to the original Dark Crystal film. Oh, wow. Yeah. In a 2012 interview with IndieWire, Tarkovsky stated that the film was meant to have been, quote, a Miyazaki puppet movie in the spirit of The Dark Crystal, but pushing it further and being more modern. Wow, that's super interesting. I would love to see somebody with Gendy Tartakovsky's visual sensibilities do something with puppets. Like, that sounds cool. Yeah, and I think this is going to be a movie that we may have to explore later. Yeah, if there's more info out there about it, that's awesome. (laughs) This would have easily sent me down a rabbit hole, but I had to move on. But for now, all you need to know is that the film was indefinitely suspended in 2009. J.J. Abrams was also interested in directing this film. The script was then adapted into the comic book series under the same title, and many of the design and plot elements would find their way into the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. Starting in September 2013... IDW Productions began releasing a series of Samurai Jack comics written by Jim Zub. It wasn't unusual to see Cartoon Network characters in comic book form. From 2006 to 2012, DC and Cartoon Network collaborated to make a series of comics under the titles Cartoon Network Action Pack and Cartoon Network Block Party that would feature characters from their popular original shows and create one-off stories on them. Block Party would be more funny and silly shows like Ed, Ed, and Eddie and Dexter's Laboratory, while Action Pack featured characters of more serious and action-filled shows like Powerpuff Girls and Samurai Jack. So when the Samurai Jack series came along, they treated it more like the show in the hopes that this would conclude the series. Mm -hmm. The series picks up where the fourth season left off. Jack learns of the Rope of Eons, a device that connects the past to the future. And if you get a hold of it, you can travel through time. The problem was, is that when Aku took over the world, he shredded the rope so that no one, especially Jack, could return to the past and complete his mission. Jack must find these threads and piece them together to make the rope. Over the course of five issues, Jack nearly completes the rope with Aku possessing the final thread. During their battle, Aku strikes Jack with a fatal blow, and he needs to decide if he should sacrifice the rope to save his life or die. Jack decides to save his life and escape, meaning that he could no longer travel to the past and complete his journey. The series continues with Jack taking on new foes and encountering familiar allies from the show. There was even a special issue called Samurai Jack, a special director's cut that was a comic adaptation of the premiere movie with minor changes and commentary from Gendy Tartofsky and artist Bill Ray. On February 27th, 2015, Fredador Films announced that they were collaborating with Cartoon Network Studios and Warner Animation Group to develop and produce an Adventure Time theatrical feature-length film. Around this time, rumors circulated that they would also be producing a Samurai Jack film simultaneously. Fans seemed convinced, especially when Tartakovsky left the Popeye the Sailor Man film to create his own film. The film ended up being called Can You Imagine, which was another 
film that Gendy didn't have a chance to finish, and maybe another subject that we will have to revisit in the future. I forgot that Gendy Tartakovsky was attached to Popeye. That's another one of those unmade movies that maybe deserves its own episode because there's like a lot of animatics and stuff you can find of that. And like the art style is really cool because this was around the time where people started to realize that CG stuff could be more stylized. Yeah, I didn't mention this and I didn't really include in the story. This is also the time that he's making Hotel Transylvania. Yes, a movie that I've never seen, but I know definitely has its fans. Yeah. In December 2015, Adult Swim delivered a Christmas miracle when they announced that Samurai Jack was returning for a fifth season in 2016. Gendy canceled his plans to direct the third Hotel Transylvania movie to focus on Samurai Jack. During Comic-Con 2016, Gendy, in an interview with IGN, he revealed that the storyline or elements from the comics were not canonical to the fifth season, so we can just ignore all that. In June 2016, more of the season was revealed from animator Alex Luce. He stated that the season was 10 episodes and would serve more like a five-hour-long movie, and the story would take place 50 years later, after the fourth season ended. Eventually, Tartakovsky was convinced to return to direct Hotel Transylvania 3, which delayed the production of Jack. In July 2016, in a behind-the-scenes look of Season 5, Gendy confirmed that there will not be a Samurai Jack movie, despite the push from the fans and the petition that was signed on Change.org. Another issue that the production needed to deal with was the voice of Aku. With Maku gone, they needed an actor who could replicate his iconic voice. So they turned to Greg Baldwin, who previously provided the voice of Aku in the Cartoon Network online video game Fusion Fall. No one can defeat me. Maku's recordings from the archives were then used in Aku's past self in the final episode. Finally, over 12 years later, the first episode of Samurai Jack Season 5 premiered on Adult Swim on March 11th. 2017. Fifty years have passed, but I do not age. Time has lost its effect on me. Yet the suffering continues. Aku's grasp chokes the past, present, and future. Hope is lost. Gotta get back. Back to the past. Samurai Jack. Having the show on Adult Swim and presenting this final story as a season rather than a movie gave Gendy the freedom and wiggle room that he needed to complete the saga of Jack and the reign of Aku. Again, from the IGN interview, he explained that he took elements from multiple story pitches and put them together in the season and ended the series like he originally wanted to over a decade ago. Also, with this being on Adult Swim, this allowed the series to add more mature elements, especially the moment when Jack slices the neck of one of the daughters of Aku to find in horror that he actually took the life of a human and he was not fighting a robot. It's really interesting that because this was an adult swim, it kind of helps the series grow to a much more mature level. For me, for example, like I was a child watching Samurai Jack growing up. 
And then to watch this years later as an adult and to find that the show had grown with me, like it feels like it understands the fans. Yeah. Correct me if this is not the case, but I feel like the story I always heard about this is that the original run had black oil and because he's fighting robots and then the new version means that they can actually show blood. And that's kind of like a delineation of like, oh, we got to make everything a robot versus like, okay, now there's actual blood happening. Yeah. And Gendy had to explain that, yes, it is on Adult Swim. They are able to introduce adult elements to it. And really, it seemed like the sky's the limit when it came to what the standards and practices were. But he also understood that if the fans of the original cartoon are much older, a lot of them are having children. And a lot of these children are being introduced to Jack through their parents. So how do you create a show that is going to be age appropriate for both the younger audience, but also the older audience Mm. so that they would understand. And I think they do it in a really great way. So like I mentioned before, there is a scene where Jack first slices open the neck of like one of the daughters of Aku. And I remember just gasping when that happened, because this had never happened before. And the fact that he had killed someone was unheard of yeah for him to realize that he had also just killed another human was just devastating to him also throughout the series he's dealing with ptsd he's dealing with the guilt that he has of not being able to complete his mission this being 50 years later that means that he's had all this time to like really fester in what he believes is his failure There's so much of a human element to it that they really couldn't explore, not because of the age-restricted content, but more so because they could actually take the story and actually expand it through the series and actually make this a chronological series rather than making one-off episodes. Yeah, It's a really unique season. So this season does take place 50 years in the future. This is explained right in the beginning that Jack is actually stuck in time. So because he is in the future, he's stuck in the time that he first traveled to the future, meaning that he does not age. So that's why he looks the same way in season five as he did in season four, even though it's many, many years later. Hmm. The series is finally complete and Gendy Tartakovsky ended the series like he always wanted to. Now, Jack continues to live on in comic form. After the fifth season, IDW Publishing created a five-issue series that would have taken place between season four and five, titled Quantum Jack, where Jack jumps through different dimensions, trying to find his way back to the original dimension. These issues are the most left-field ideas of Jack. (laughs) There's an issue where he's a leader of a biker gang. There's another where he's a luchador. There's another world where giant monsters fight a giant robot. And then there's another one where Jack works in an office, which is run by Aku. (laughs) Were these seen as bad crazy swings or like, oh, that's actually kind of cool and interesting crazy swings? It seems like very interesting swings because seeing that Tartakovsky didn't really take the comic as canonical, they were like, okay, well, what is it that we can make that doesn't mess with the fifth season where you can still end up there, but like still go through like crazy weird ideas without having to really mess with the show. 
And then in 2019, IDW came out with a four-issue series called Lost Worlds, also taking place between season four and five. In this, Jack finds a town that is ruled by a doppelganger of himself. If there are like 50 years between like seasons four and five, there seems to be a lot of possibilities within that time. So I would not be surprised if we started seeing more Samurai Jack comics in the future. But as far as the TV series goes, that is pretty much concluded. Yeah. And we're not going to see a theatrical movie. So yeah. I doubt that is ever going to happen. Something that I wanted to mention, it didn't really have too much to do with the development of the Samurai Jack movie or potential movie, but I did want to mention the video games that were made for Samurai Jack. So sure. there's Samurai Jack, the Shadow of Aku. The game was released in 2004 for PlayStation 2 and GameCube. From what is known, it seems like Tartakovsky had little to no involvement in the development of the game. The game seems to take place between season two and three. Another speculation is that it takes place during season four. What's most important is that the game leads up to fighting a coup in a final boss battle. Unfortunately, even if you complete the game, you as Jack did not defeat Aku. The same thing happened in the Game Boy Advance game that came out a year before the Amulet of Time. Jack must piece together the amulet elements, earth, fire, ice, and wind, to make it and travel back in time. He then battles Aku and is sent back to the future before the final blow. Most recently, we got Samurai Jack Battle Through Time, which was released in 2020. Again, Nigendi was not involved in this game and has expressed that this and the games before were actually just mediocre cash grabs. Adult Swim tried to persuade Tartakovsky to get involved because they were adamant on making a quality game. So as a compromise, Nigendi sent Derek Bachman, the season five head writer, to go and help develop the game. Although the game takes place during the fifth season, it is not part of the official lore, much like the comics. But yeah, that is Samurai Jack in the film that nearly happened. All right. Well, you got any other final thoughts, Dan? Because I did a rewatch of season five recently. I really enjoyed that series. And I will say that if you are interested in watching season five, but have not seen any of the Samurai Jack original series, I will say that season five does stand alone Okay, and they preface it ahead of time. The only thing that you might miss out on, but you'll kind of understand what's happening is that they bring back a lot of the characters that he encountered hmm. in the first four seasons, but it's easily explained because when you visit each one of these areas and these characters, a lot of them come out and say like, Jack was the one that freed us. He helped us many, many years ago, and the society thrives because of him. And they kind of do like a short flashback of like what he did. So for those who are fans of the original series, have watched the original series, you can watch the new season and be like, oh, I recognize that character. I recognize that character. I remember those characters. But if you come into the fifth season completely blind you'll still be able to follow along with what's happening and it's a really enjoyable watch it's really gorgeous i highly recommend it all right definitely gonna have to check that out well thank you everybody so much for listening 
If you'd like to find more about this podcast, you can go to our website, pipedreampodcasts.com, which is also the home of Come On Fahugal Pods, Escape from Vault Disney, The Mystery Shack Look Back, and Pod Made You Special. While you're there, you can find our social media pages. We're on Instagram at How Did This Not Get Made. We're on Twitter at HDTNGM. And you can also send us your emails not get made at gmail.com. I realized something, Dan, the other day when we were recording Come on Fahugal Pods that the email address for Come on Fahugal Pods starts with the word how, but the email address for how did this not get made does not start with the word how. <laughs> and it confused me because huh. I started to say, send us your emails, how. Wait, no, that's the wrong. Wait, no, it's not the wrong show. That's the right show. Huh. Weird thing that I, I never, never noticed. That. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, send us your emails. We love to hear from you with your suggestions for future episodes or corrections. We are also so appreciative of everyone who rates us on your various podcatcher platforms. So Apple Podcasts is still the biggest and best place to be rating podcasts, but Spotify or Podcast Addict has ratings. Wherever you listen to podcasts, go drop us a rating or review. It really helps. That's going to go ahead and wrap us up. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening. Thank you. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.